<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Oh, so Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphone? Oh, no, that's so no way. Oh, no, 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 Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a podcast hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me, and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is the artistic director of the Art of Time Ensemble, Mr. Andrew Barashko. The Art of Time Ensemble is a collective of some of the absolute finest musicians, arrangers, composers, and singers in Canadian music who collaborate with the best Canadian artists in other performing arts, film, and literature as well. Andrew himself is a brilliant pianist. He debuted with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra when he was 17 years of age. Hey, what were you doing when you were 17? I wasn't doing that kind of thing when I was 17, I'll tell you that. Uh, He has performed, Andrew has, as a soloist and chamber musician extensively throughout Canada and the rest of the world. And he is, notably, a huge Beatles fan. You can find out more about Andrew and the Art of Time Ensemble at their website, artoftimeensemble.com. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and their work streams on all the major platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, etc., etc., While we're talking about web coordinates, I'll just remind you that the website for this podcast is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this series. This is the seventh episode of Series 3. You can find all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2, as well as the other episodes from this series, right there at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. So this episode, and the next one, because this is going to be a two-parter, will be a a little bit different than the normal format. I mean, yes, Andrew will talk about the 1967 Beatles genre-changing albums, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and we will go through the album as per usual, track by track, and he'll have his insights and opinions on the music, and I'll have some some trivia that will hopefully uh, entertain you and uh, maybe give you a little bit of knowledge about the the music but the little twist is we will also talk about 
and listen to the Art of Time Ensemble's 2012 live presentation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You see, they put on a series of live shows in Toronto in May and June of 2012. That was the 45th anniversary year of the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The shows were recorded and a live album was released. You can stream that album on all the platforms. The album is really, really good. It features on vocals Andy Mays of the Sky Diggers, John Mann of Spirit of the West, Craig Northey of Odds, and Stephen Page, ex of the Bare Naked Ladies. Uh, Stephen and Craig, both friends of the podcast, they've been on before. It also features a stunning array of string, woodwind, and brass players, as well as Andrew on the piano. So we're going to talk about how that group went about interpreting the greatest pop group of all time. And some would say the greatest pop group's greatest record. Andrew, it is great to see you. It is such an honor to meet you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. I can't think of anything more fun than talking about the Beatles. <laughs> uh, funny, most of my guests feel that way. They like to talk about the Beatles. Uh, before we talk about the Beatles, let's talk about, uh, I told, uh, dear listener, I told you a few moments ago about the Art of Time Ensemble, but I have the man here who is responsible for the Art of Time Ensemble. Uh, so in your own words, what do you do? What do I do? It's it's always been difficult to articulate. I'm a classical musician myself, and I originally started Art of Time to turn people on to classical music. And I thought the best way to do it would, would be to involve friends who were pop musicians, jazz musicians, and to create programs that included not only classical music, but all every style of music. Not every style, but many styles. And it kind of spun, spun uh, from there. Well, a, a look at the catalog, uh, which you can find at Bandcamp, among other places, uh, and it is very diverse. Now, are, is this an ongoing project? You, are, like, are you working on something right now? Yeah, yeah. We're and 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 plus, what what you see on Bandcamp is only a part of what we do. A lot of our projects involve theater or dance or literature. You know, we've worked with Michael Ondaatje and Margaret Atwood, Barbara Gowdy. Um, so yeah, so the the music is just one part of what I mean. Music is the underlying; it's the common denominator. But these pop music projects are a particular thing. We're working on two, uh, developing two big projects. One is a classical music project. It's a it's a piece called A Soldier's Tale. Uh, by Stravinsky from the beginning of the 20th century. We're having a new libretto written for it. Um, and we're working on an animated film. Wow. Yeah. And uh, any timeline for that stuff? Uh, the Stravinsky project will be performed in October of 2024. Um, I'm hoping the animated film will be completed by the spring of 2024. Um, and there will be live performances again next year, starting in December. Uh, so in terms of what we're going to do today, uh, as I explained, dear listener, it's a little bit off the beaten beetle track of what we normally do, sort of, kind of. We're going to look at Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But, of course, there's the added twist of the Art of Time Ensemble's 
and and I hesitate a little because I'll, I'll get you to determine exactly what it is. I'll call it, for lack of a better description, tribute. I won't call it a cover because it's not a note-for-note note cover. It's not like those concerts you go to where you're going to hear Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band note-for-note. Note. It's not that. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, Andrew, what is your earliest memory of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and what what about the album fascinates you? Well, I, I was born in the Soviet Union, so I never heard... Um, pop music or rock music until we left. I, I, w- I would have been six and a half. So I remember the first Beatles song I ever heard. While And so there was a, a transition between the time we, we left the Soviet Union and arrived in Canada of about a year and a half. Um, the first song I heard was when I'm 64. And I just loved it. You know, then when we arrived in Canada in 1973, um, I remember our first night in Canada, we, we stayed with my aunt and her family and my first cousin, who's a bit older. He had a bunch of albums, including uh, the American version of Help and Abbey Road. And so those were my two, uh, the first two albums that I devoured. Uh, and and completely fell in love with the Beatles, and, and they've been a constant in my life ever since. Sergeant Pepper, ironically, um, you know, I I didn't discover until I was a teenager as an album. You know, of course, I had the Red and the Blue compilations, mm. right? The so, gateway for so many. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was certainly my gateway. I mean, aside from those two albums that I mentioned. Um, so yeah, so aside from A Day in the Life and Sgt. Pepper and Lucy, I really didn't know uh, anything else on the album until I was in my early teens, maybe. And, you know, again, like the Beatles, I can't think of a more profound musical influence in my life than the Beatles. They're, they're my greatest musical love, you know? So please, when I say this, what I'm going to say, take it within that context, which was... Sgt. Pepper was never my favorite Beatles album, right? Mm-hmm. Um, w- which one was? Abbey Road? You know, Abbey Road for a long time, the White Album for a long time, uh, Revolver depend, for a long depends time. Depends what day it is, exactly. doesn't it? Yep, you know, yep. anything from... And I love the early ones as well, but everything from Rubber Soul on, including Let It Be, a lot of people knock that album. I love that album. What was your thought process? I'll ask you a question every fan's going to ask, Andrew, and that is, why would you try to repaint the Mona Lisa? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, And I resisted for a very long time for that reason. Um, And then I got up the courage to do Abbey Road on the 40th anniversary in, in 09. And it worked incredibly well. So in, in uh, 2012, which was, would have been the 45th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, I decided to tackle that. And all our, all our pop music projects, we've done dozens with, you know, we just released a Leonard Cohen album with Sarah Harmer and Tom Wilson, and for example. So all our pop music projects are about staying absolutely true to the song, 
and the spirit of the song while trying to come up with the most inventive, out-of-the-box, sometimes intricate arrangement as possible without trampling on the song. So everything on Sgt. Pepper, all the melodies are untouched, all the vocal harmonies are untouched, the forms are untouched. In other words, the lengths of the phrases of the sections, they're all the Beatles. It's like, but everything you hear behind those vocals is fresh and new. And, you know, the way I rationalized it, you know, was if I did everything I could to stay true to them, um, that music was never intended to be performed. It had never been performed live. And, you know, I... <laughs> Like you said, I, I, I never imagined uh, bettering the Beatles. It was about just trying to do as, to come as close as possible in terms of honoring that music. So, yeah. I, I've mentioned the names before, and and we'll mention them again. But you, Craig Northey, Stephen Page, Johnny Mann, uh, Andy Mays, Andy Mays. Like you just it so. How do these people react when you pick up the phone and call them and tell them what you want to do? And, and that's, by the way, uh, you know, I, I mentioned singers, uh, more high profile, uh, but I imagine like the viola players, like all the string players, like everybody is is a, a top notch yeah, player. Yeah, it's the cream of the cream of Toronto-based musicians. Um, by the time we did, uh, Stephen was involved in Abbey Road, which had happened two and a half years earlier. I had already worked with Andy on a number a number of different projects, so they knew what I was about. Um, and it was uh, Stephen who introduced me to Craig. I, I had been, always been a fan of the odds. Mm -hmm. And through Craig, I got to John, John Mann from Spirit of the West. Um, so they came as a as a package, those guys. Well, it's, uh, I mean, you're going to have to listen to the album uh, to get the most out of, we're going to hear samples of it, but you're going to have to listen to the album. And I, I uh, strongly encourage you to go and find it. I found it on Bandcamp. You can buy it there, download it in whatever quality yeah, you it, want. But it's it, on all the digital platforms. So it, iTunes, Spotify, what have you. It's, it yeah. is... If you're a Beatles fan, dear listener, it is, a, well, I'd say eye-opener. It's a real ear-opener. It is a real treat. Uh, before we dive into the album, uh, just sit back and relax for one second, Andrew. I'll give you, I want to give a little context, as I always do, to sort of what was going on in the, the Beatles world at that time. Uh, if you want to jump in at any time, just uh, please do. But So to understand the Beatles, 1967, you have to understand their 1966. So in 1966, the Beatles recorded and released Revolver. It was their most creatively ambitious album to date. The arrangements for most of the songs so exceeded the capacity to be recreated in concert in that era. I mean, we're talking mid-60s here. Uh, they didn't play a single track from Revolver in concert during subsequent tours of Europe, the Far East, and America. It just, they couldn't do it. That tour, those tours, were compared to the world tours of 1964 and 1965, by and large, 
not enjoyable. Uh, there were protests in Japan because they played at the Budokan Hall, which was considered sacred by some and suitable only for sumo wrestling uh, and other culturally significant events. Uh, the Beatles were infamously roughed up by police in the Philippines when they unknowingly uh, snubbed First Lady Imelda Marcos. Then came the USA, and uh, I'll use that word infamous again, but the entire John Lennon, Beatles more popular than Jesus comment that set off the religious nutters, uh, particularly in the southern U.S. By the time they played their last ever proper concert on August 29th, 1966 at San Francisco's Candlestick Park, they had decided by and large that they were done with touring and they returned to England for an extended period of time off. They hadn't had that in a long, long time. So John Lennon goes off to Spain to appear in uh, uh, a film that Hard Day's Night director Richard Lester was directing, How I Won the War. Uh, Ringo hung out with his family in Surrey. Uh, George Harrison went to Bombay and studied the sitar under Ravi Shankar. Paul McCartney hung out in London, loving the clubs and the single life, took LSD for the first time, and also wrote a soundtrack with George Martin uh, for a lovely little English film called uh, The family way. Since early September, John, Paul, George, and Ringo had barely spent a day together, and it was now moving into November. It was a new phase of their lives and their career. No more worrying about live performances, no more Fab Four mop tops singing pop songs on stage. It was casual, 60s drenched, casual, stylish clothing, mustaches, uh, and taking all that they had learned in the recording studio the previous four years and working on songs that were never intended to be played to a live audience. And so it was when they all walked into Abbey Road Studio, Studio 2, the evening of November 24th, 1966, to start work on their new album. The session started at 7 o'clock in the evening, ran until 2.30 in the morning, it was take one of Strawberry Fields Forever. Before the end of the year, they also worked on When I'm 64 and Penny Lane. They finished up Penny Lane just after Christmas, so they had three complete songs in early January of 1967. Here is where the plot thickens, as you probably know. EMI and Brian Epstein had told me, said George Martin, that they needed another single since they hadn't had one for a while. I said, okay, it means we'll have to find extra material for the album, but let's couple the best two we have so far, Strawberry Fields, Forever, and Penny Lane, and issue them as a double A-sided record. To this day, I cannot imagine why that single was beaten to number one spot, because for my money, it was the best we ever issued. But there it was, and now we were left with When I'm 64 on its own for the new album. George Martin goes on to say, Realizing how desperate Brian was feeling, Epstein, I decided to give him a super strong combination, a double punch that could not fail, an unbeatable linking of two all-time great songs. Those songs would, I told him, make a fantastic double A-sided disc. Even better than our other double A-sided triumphs, Day Tripper, We Can Work It Out, and Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine. It was the biggest mistake of my professional life, recalled uh, George Martin in 1995. Uh, stunningly, the double A-sided single, one that many musicologists and George Martin regard as the finest single ever released, failed to make it to number one in the UK. It was halted at number two by... Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> you got it. Engelbert Humperdinck's Release Me. 
a fine song. Absolutely. You know, yep. better than my top 10 single. Uh, but it ended the Beatles' run of 12 consecutive number one singles in the UK. The single did go to number one in Canada and the US. But the Beatles now had a problem in that they did not put singles on albums. It was felt by them at the time that it was ripping the fans off for them to buy a single and buy it again on an album. So now instead of having Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane and When I'm 64 in the can for the new album, they just had When I'm 64, a song that you love. So here's what McCartney said in 2017 about the decision to not include Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane on Sgt. Pepper's. This is McCartney talking. The thing was, you know, we always like to release things fresh. We just made those tracks, so the thought of waiting until we had completed the whole album would not have appealed to us. You know, we liked that as soon as it was made, at the nearest point to the actual making of the song and the record, we would like to put it out. So I was glad how we did it, and it was like a fanfare, that single. Another thing we liked about it was that it was simple value for money. You really got two A-sides, but it kind of heralded what was to come and did it ever so sessions sessions run from november 24th 1966 all the way through to april 21st 1967 they spend an unprecedented time take a wild guess how many hours do you think they spent in the studio i think it was somewhere around 700 hours you nailed it yeah. 700 700 hours have you ever spent 700 hours no. making an album <laughs> but I've, you... I've never made such <laughs> It was the Beatles' eighth studio album after Revolver, which came out in August of 66, and before the White Album, which came out in November of 68. And if I may, mm-hmm. it, I, also I've always thought of it as the progression or part two of Revolver, because all, their, all the things they experimented with and took to another level on Sgt. Pepper began, everything began with Revolver. And I can speak to that in more detail, but please, I don't want to interrupt. No, you're right. Uh, And you're not. You're the guest. You're the guest. You'll do most of the talking. I just do it at the beginning. Uh, So the album comes out. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band released in the UK. Most people say it was June uh, June 1st. It was not. It was released in the UK on May 26th. Came out in the US and Canada on June the 2nd. It was rush released in the UK. My, My research is uncovered. Because Kenny Everett famous DJ, played the entire album, But For A Day In The Life, uh, on his BBC program, Where It's At, on May the 20th. So he plays it on May 20th, goes over a storm, we got to get this thing out, and they release it early. Not a single single released from the album, and it was the first Beatles album to share the exact same track list with American and Canadian releases. There was no more of that taking tracks off and moving the order around and all that kind of nonsense that we saw in North America. In Britain, the album hit number one. And between June 1967 and February 1968, spent a total of 27 weeks at the top of the chart during an initial chart run on the charts for 148 weeks. All of this in spite of a BBC ban on A Day in the Life. In the U.S., the album enjoys a 15-week stay at the top of the U.S. Top 200 chart during its initial chart run of 88 weeks. In Canada, on the RPM chart, the album debuts at 15, hits number one on July 15th, and stays there for six weeks before being... (laughs) No speaking to our taste. Uh, Displaced by Monkey Headquarters. (laughs) So the monkeys were giving them a run for their money in Canada. Uh, 
As per chartmasters.org, total physical sales of the album as of early 2022 amount to 24.8 million. That is physical sales. So a vinyl copy, cassette copy, eight track, uh, something physical, a CD that you can carry away with you, not a stream. Uh, That places it second in the Beatles core catalog behind Abbey Road with 26.7 million physical sales uh, and ahead of the White Album with total physical sales of 19 million. If you factor in digital sales of the album, the total moves to 32.3 million. It was big. So anything to add to any of that? Uh, Sergeant Pepper has by far the most intricate and rich orchestrations. So, and, and also, I mean, conceptually, right? It was the first... The package, there had been nothing like it. You know, the cover, um, it was the first time lyrics were included in, in an album. Those, those cutouts the, that they included. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know if anyone had ever done it before, but, and they actually wanted to do it on Revolver, but they got rid of all the gaps between the songs. All the songs flowed into each other. Yes. Yep. Yep. They were, uh, what are they called uh, on a record? Rills, they're called. Uh, and they, the, the standard, you know, the, and EMI was very, <clears throat> well, boys, this is the way we do things, yeah? Uh, it was very standard, the time in that uh, rill between, yeah, between tracks and, yeah, well, like everything else, the Beatles, the Beatles changed it. So they sort of segued into one another and it was shorter. So let's put this on the turntable. It is side one, cut one. I can hear the orchestra tuning up. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. album um i love i love how hard it rocks i love the um the little french horn interlude that leads into the chorus and i think i think it was the first time that anybody had speaking of these uh advanced recording techniques i think it was the first time anybody ever used di was which was direct injection just uh, the plugging of an instrument into the mi- directly into the mixing board. Yeah, McCartney's yeah. bass was plugged directly into the recording console as opposed to normally it would be recorded off a mic'd amp. That was the approach of the day. And this was, according to Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, the first time artists had done this, bypassed the amps and plugged right into the recording console. So you're bang on there. Uh, Harrison and McCartney both playing guitars on this one. Uh, McCartney also played his bass, uh, Ringo on the drums. The big uh, guitar solo is McCartney's, which I think a lot of people thought it might have been George Harrison's. Um, a pretty heavy song for its time. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and, I, and I love how it, you know, counters or balances the rest of the album, you know? It's like we're still a rock band, no matter what comes, what comes next. Do you think that they were maybe, again, context, if you look around at the time, 
what were really big at the time were sort of power pop trios. So guitar, bass, and drums. You had the Who, Cream, Jimi Hendrix experience. Do you think that influenced them maybe? Who knows? I mean, I know they were all, you know, they weren't living in a bubble. They were all out and about and, uh, you know, I'm sure they knew what Cream and the Who were up to. <laughs> Uh, the uh, little bit of trivia, the, of course, the famous orchestra warming up at the start of the song, uh, the audience settling down, clapping and laughing. Uh, they came from the Abbey Road Sound Effects Archive, uh, volume 28, taken from an audience at Royal Albert Hall, and volume 6, Applause and Laughter, taken from a performance of Beyond the Fringe in 1961, and the audience screaming was from a recording made of the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. So they mixed all those together. So just to reiterate, uh, dear listener, the recordings you're going to hear by the Art of Time Ensemble are all live recordings that were made May 31st, June 1st, and June 2nd, 2012 in Toronto, Canada at the N-Wave Theatre. And the ensemble features some of the finest singers and players in Canadian music. So your version of this song in my notes, and, and again, these are non-musicians' notes, so you correct me or you steer it wherever you think it needs to be steered, Andrew, to do it justice. But I thought it was fairly true to the original, although not as heavy, a little maybe lighter and and more jaunty. Is that accurate? It's very accurate, actually. Yeah, that that was absolutely my intent. I wanted that song and the reprise to be as close to the original as possible, as kind of a grounding of the album. And I arranged those. Uh, I had never arranged anything up until that point. So, I mean, the reason why it sounds lighter is because we didn't have those distorted electric guitars and the heft uh, of the Beatles. And, and also, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, if you count all the classical and Indian musicians who played on the album, they, they number in the dozens, if not approaching a hundred. Um, and, you know, when you're there were 12 of us on stage. So concessions had to be made in terms of, okay, what are we going to assign this part to? So that uh, interlude, which they did with four French horns on the album, uh, I delegated to the strings. There were six strings as part of the band. Um, and just to give it a little twist, um, I introduced a little bit of uh, a John Philip Sousa march. I was really influenced. One of my favorite classical composers is a Russian composer named Alfred Schnitka, who was a, a, a polystylist. Some of his pieces were collages of a bunch of different styles of music. And in uh, his first symphony, there was a movement which featured Baroque music, uh, avant-garde music, jazz, and there was this big band, big brass band that kept interrupting everybody. 
So that was my inspiration uh, to stick that in. But that's the only deviation from um, musically from the original. So when you're doing it, uh, was there ever a moment, because your audience, not to mention you, so familiar with the piece that you were playing, the original piece that you were playing, was there ever like, no, 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 we've got to have the heavy guitars in there. It's just not going to work. You know, never. We've toured this project twice in the States. We've performed it at least a dozen times in Canada. People love it, you know? And I think perhaps, I mean, you know, uh, the integrity, I think, comes across or, or the reverence with which we perform the music. And as I said, like the melodies are untouched. So if you're in the audience, you can sing along with the song as you know it. Do you know what I mean? And be surprised, hopefully, by the, the freshness or the, the differences in the, in the arrangements. Beautiful back and forth vocal between Craig Northey and Stephen Page. Mm-hmm. With Sergeant Pepper's lonely hearts round back We hope you will enjoy the show Sergeant Pepper's lonely hearts round back Sit back and let the evening go yeah. So nice. Uh, did they work that out themselves or was that your arrangement? Uh, well, I assigned um, who sang lead where. So we get into uh, cut number two, and with a little help from my friends, written specifically for Ringo for the original album. Yeah, which I think was a stroke of genius to give Ringo that lead because uh, there's something so beautiful about uh, I, the innocence with which it's delivered. Um, that song also has one of my favorite Beatle lyrics of all time, uh, which is, what do you see when you turn out the lights? I can't tell you, but I know it's mine. I just love that, that line. And it's actually the only song on the album, I think, that does not involve any classical or Eastern East Indian instruments on it. The song was specifically written for Ringo, uh, originally called the Badfinger Boogie, was what they called it. Um, and uh, according to Beatles biographer Hunter Davies, uh, John and Paul wrote most of the tune at Paul's place during a small gathering of friends over the course of an evening on March the 28th. And it was finished up the following day at McCartney's place in St. John's Wood. So maybe one of the high points of the record for me, of your record, uh, in the segue from that opening track, you do an interpretation of the orchestral buildup that we all know from uh, A Day in a Life. Uh, for about 30 seconds, there's no big piano crash at the end, uh, just a pause, and then it's John Mann from Spirit of the West coming in with his lovely vocal. Tell me how you had that brainwave. I love it.
What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? That track uh, was arranged by a guy named Dan Parr, who's a Toronto-based composer, orchestrator, and perhaps the biggest Beatle nerd of the bunch. Uh, so go, uh, going back for a moment to what I was describing in terms of our uh, popular music projects, uh, it's also uh, a collaboration always with the arranger. Like these guys are all master musicians who live mostly in the commercial world. So it's their chance to let loose and be creative in a way that they can't in their, you know, in their day jobs. So it was, it was Dan's idea and it was brilliant. And also, I don't know if you caught it, but he quotes every single song from the album in that arrangement. It's, it's fantastical. Um, I've, I've, you know what? Uh, hand on heart. Uh, I, I didn't catch that. I, I was sort of transfixed by the, oh, they're doing the day in the life, you know, the, the sort of play from the low note to the high note. That's what I was listening to. Yeah, he quotes everything. Uh, some things are more obvious than others, like uh, uh, Rita or, or Mr. Kite. Uh, she's leaving home. Other things are uh, trickier to spot. Wow. A, a neat thing, the, the, the great story about with a little help from my friends in terms of, of the Beatles. I, I love this recollection from uh, engineer Jeff Emmerich's memoir. Uh, so the big thing at the end of that song is Ringo hitting that high note, right? So it's, note at the end of the song, it's an octave up from the octave of the five note song, which was, they wrote it in a limited octave so Ringo could sing it, John and Paul did. But he had to go up for this big part at the end. Uh, and uh, Ringo said in an interview in 1992, took a lot of coaxing from Paul to get me to sing that last note. I just felt it was very hot. I always worry about the vocals. I'm insecure when I do vocals. So he'd proposed doing the note at a slower tape speed, which could be sped up. But the effect, they tried it, made him sound like one of the chipmunks. <laughs> So that didn't work. So here's Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer kicking in. No ring, you've got to do it properly, Paul finally concluded, writes Emmerich. It's okay, just put your mind to it, you can do it. George Harrison said encouragingly, even John added some helpful, if decidedly non-technical advice, just throw your head back and let her rip. So after several attempts, he successfully scales the vocal heights, gets it. The boys are all up in the sound booth, the control room, looking down. The cheers go up from the bandmates, and scotch and cokes were poured and toasted the successful session. I just think that is such a great story. It is a great story. You know, all, all of them cheering for, come on, Ringo, you can hit that note. Uh, and it's, for me, it's the highlight of the song. So we go on to the next cut, and this is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. What say you about this one? Well, you know, incredible. Uh, such a magical soundscape. Uh, such, a, such an amazing vocal. I, I, love, I love the way they incorporated Indian instruments into the texture. There's a tambura uh, throughout, and... Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but 
George is always doubling John's vocal on electric guitar. Once you know it's there, it's you can hear it. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope and, and and also while trying to make the guitar sound like a sarangi, which is a an Indian instrument. But it, it creates an incredible effect. Um, also, I, I think it was one of the songs where they experimented. I think they sped it up. Um yeah, it, one of my favorite songs on the album. There, there's more very speed on this track than any other Beatles track ever. Uh, everything, every single thing in the song, except for Paul's bass and George's less lead guitar was played back at a faster speed than what it was recorded on. Oh, oh so that's how he produced that, George produced that sound. They, they fed it through Leslie Speaker. Leslie Speaker, yeah. Uh, so yeah, to, you're bang on tons of very speed. The thing for me, uh, uh, and again, it had to be pointed out to me, but the the three note opening. It, it, yeah. So it's simple. Beautiful. And also just that sound. It's like, it was, it's, I, I believe it was done on organ, but it sounds nothing like organ. It sounds more like a, a celeste. Uh, yeah, magical opening. Yeah, it's a, a, a Lowry Herdiger or Herdiger DSO one organ. Uh, organ had uh, tube oscillators, which allowed the notes to decay after the key was released. So that's why you get that, and it could create a, a bell-like or harpsichord type of sounds. Had a built-in Leslie speaker which was used a lot on the White Album. Uh, George also plays, plays the tambour, as you mentioned, the, the droning Indian instrument. Uh, the very distinctive keyboard part played by Paul McCartney. Uh, and that's how they got that going. Now, your version, the big thing that jumps out, clearly. Uh, the choruses? Well, no, there's no very speed. You know, this is a track that's so right. heavily very speeded. Right. You didn't have that available. Uh, Jonathan Goldsmith's arrangement, nonetheless, seems to me it captured that dreamy feel. Oh, totally. So you have the Beatles got the dreamy field in the studio. You had to do it live. So how did that happen? Uh, the instrumentation. Um, the Jonathan is a, a master um, musician and and, a, and again a beetle nut. You know, the, again the way. Also, I don't know if I mentioned it, but just to ensure that we didn't stray from. The Beatles too much. Everyone involved 
is a beetle nut. I made sure that, you know, if they had enough respect for the beetles, that they wouldn't make it about themselves. Um, so yeah, Jonathan, um, Jonathan is an incredible jazz pianist. He was um, Bruce Coburn's pianist and producer for years. He's, he's an amazing film composer. He's won a BAFTA. Um, and, and so he's one of the few guys that not only know the, the pop idioms, but also he's, he's a, re, a very serious student of 20th century classical music. So he, he's studied all those techniques and orchestration. Um, yeah, so that chart, it, it's full of polyrhythms of all kinds. Um, Ex- explain that to non-musical people. Uh, it means um, some instruments playing quintuplets while others are playing triplets or quadruplets while, while others playing triplets. You can hear it throughout the song. And the most, the two, for me, the two most striking features of that arrangement is that unlike in the original where it explodes into the choruses, where it, it, it turns into a rock song, this goes completely the other way and becomes this kind of ethereal, magical, dreamy version, you know, with all kinds of shimmering. You, you know, you picture the sky with diamonds. It's, there's no, um, there's no uh, meat to it. The other thing about that chart is it has the most ridiculously difficult trumpet part. I don't know if you caught any of it. It's insanely difficult. And, you know, again, like it's, um, you know, whenever you play anything that's too busy, it kind of weighs things down, you know. It, uh, you don't want to overwrite something that you want to sound light or airy. Anyway, Larry Larson, who's one of the best trumpeters in the in the country, nailed it. And Craig Northey. And Craig nailed great, it too. Great yep. vocal. Yep. Great vocal by Craig Northey. I'll just, as, as, a, as a two guys discussing music, I will say the, the busy part, uh, you know, I, I take your point, but the, the truly brilliant interpreters and players, someone who springs to mind to me is Bill Evans, uh, who's doing so much and yet makes it sound... So, non so much in a lot of his playing. Yeah. Um, it's just it. so your trumpet player, I guess, did just that because it, I, when I heard it, it didn't register on me like, oh, that's there's so much going on there, which maybe is part of his genius. Yeah, but great interpretation. Uh, so we go from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and that psychedelia uh, to a song with a bit more of an edge, one of my favorite on the Beatles album, uh, Getting Better. One of my favorite songs on the album, but, really? again, Why, but, but, but again, within within context of I I love I love the performance. Uh, I don't know. Uh, 
those things at the end of the day are quite subjective. You know, the, the things that jump out to me about that song, I mean, a hell of a lot of fun to play. Um, and again, great performance. The thing that sticks out to me is like the the lyric, which is so unlike Paul McCartney, you know? I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from... How does it... I kept her apart from the, the things, things that, that she, she loves. Yeah. yeah, it's something Lennon would write, you know? Um, but Lennon did have that, like I'm the the Greek chorus, if you will. The you know I got it's getting better. It's so optimistic, and then Lennon and this was Lennon that wrote this part. Oh, it you know, was. It can't yeah. get much worse, right? You know, just uh, like so Lennon and McCartney at their best. Yeah, and again, like uh, it 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 largely features the band, but but the tambora is part of the texture, and I think it really it really adds to it. McCartney recalls writing it with John in the music room at his home in St. John's Wood. Uh, and John came up with the, it can't get much worse. And also some of the angry young man lyrics, problems at school, women beating. So there's John Lennon, not Paul McCartney uh, in terms of the lyrics. And uh, the, the one sort of famous story, famous slash infamous story to this. The, the session on March the 21st, where they're adding vocals to the track, uh, this was the night that John Lennon was tripping on LSD in the studio. Uh, and George Martin, uh, rest his soul, had just thought John wasn't feeling well. And he so he takes him outside to get some air onto the roof of Studio Two. Uh, as the story goes, McCartney and Harrison at one point asked where John was. And George said, well, John didn't seem to be feeling well. So I'm taking him outside up onto the roof to get some air. And the other two <laughs> go racing up to the roof to get Lennon back inside. Uh, there were no rails on said roof and it was about a 30 foot drop to the ground so uh that could have been that could have been the end right there uh but it's a that's a story that's been told in beetle books now your version uh that again distinctive thing about getting better to most listeners or to me that sort of stabbing guitar uh that opens the song and uh, you replaced it with the flourish of piano and strings Again, a, a, a great Toronto-based musician. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's worked with everyone. Feist. I, I met him when he was uh, Stephen's Stephen Page's uh, musical director. So uh, it was his choice, um, and I thought it worked beautifully. Again, it was pretty straight ahead, aside from the odd flourish here and there. Um, more syncopated than the original. Um, and, and, and again, it comes back to the fact of Bryden was working with a limited number of instruments, right? The orchestration was six strings, two horns, 
and rhythm section of guitar, piano, bass, and drums. So, so yeah, it was his choice. So yeah, yeah, we haven't done that yet. So, so what is you just went over part of it? What was the exact setup that you had? That's an important bit of context. Yeah, so you're, you're on piano. I'm on piano. Rob Pilch on guitar. Uh, Joe Phillips on bass, Rick Sachs on drums and percussion, um, Johnny Johnson on uh, saxes and clarinets, uh, Larry Larson, who's a classical musician, he's the principal trumpet player in the KW Symphony, and six spectacular string pr- players. Mm-hmm. Steve Sitarski was the, the first violin. Um, yeah, Rachel Mercer. Um, and what about your vocalists? Did any of the vocalists play? Um, that you can, I know it's a few years ago. No, none of them. So they're just there. They, they were all up front. Yep. You know, it was all about them, uh, mostly. <laughs> and, and they all sang backup uh, for each other. Yeah, you can see uh, sections yeah. of this, by the way, uh, dear listener, on YouTube. So yep. you can see what the setup was like, but I, I just thought it would be uh, sort of pertinent to give people an idea of, of what it is that they're hearing. So we go on to the next track on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it's uh, Fixing a Hole, a song according to McCartney about being on his own in his new house in St. John's Wood and being allowed to do whatever he wanted creatively. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wandering where it will go I love them all, but it's probably my least favorite song on the album. You know, it's charming. I like the uh, the harpsichord bit that George Martin contributed. Um but yeah, n- not one of my favorite songs. Yep. Uh, it, you know, the, the interesting thing about it, it was the first new Beatles track to be recorded outside of Abbey Road Studios. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. all, all yeah. three studios were booked up on this night and they were they were hot to, to work on the track. So they went to Regent Sound Studios, which is no longer there. Uh, it uh, was on Tottenham Court Road. Uh, they hired in the harpsichord that you hear played at the start of the song. Uh, just as a note of trivia, other music made at these studios before they closed. The Stones recorded there, The Kinks, you know, amongst uh, others. What I find interesting, and this is more of a technical question before we talk about your interpretation of the song, but so different studio, different equipment, different board, but it still sounds like a Beatles song recorded at Abbey Road. So how is, does the studio not have much to do with it in the end as a guy who's been in many studios? Again, you're talking to a classical musician, right? So I, I, I've, I've never uh, worked with um, processing sounds or, you know, everything we do is about the, the natural acoustic of the space that we're playing in. So I really don't know um, how they did that. I'm sure uh, some of it was, was done in, in, when they were mastering the album, kind of evening out so that everything was at the same levels. Um, I think it does sound 
slightly different. There's something thinner about that arrangement. It's a great rabbit hole to go down. But yeah. So, well, or, or uh, a hole, fixing a hole, pardon the pun. Uh, so let's get to your version. And the thing that jumped out at me, uh, it seems to, is that a waltz time that it's in? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yes, it was done by a, a guy named Cameron Wilson, whom I've known for 35 years if not longer. He's based in Vancouver. He's a very versatile musician. He's a violinist. He plays jazz. Uh, he has a Django Reinhardt cover band. Um, he plays classical music. He plays in the Vancouver Symphony. Again, a beetle nut. Um, what's, so yeah, he decided to do it in waltz time. So in heavy waltz time, like not even in 12-8 time, which is essentially 4-4, four, four, where each beat is, is split into triplets. Uh, but what's even more remarkable to me about that arrangement is that without changing the melody, uh, he changed it to a minor key. I, I don't know how he made it work. I'm fixing how where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it will go I'm feeling the cracks that ran to the door and kept my mind from wandering where it So that was the only one where the the harmonies didn't quite work because the harmonies, the original harmonies were based on the major key. Um, so it gives it kind of a spooky sound. It, it's, it's, uh, it makes me think of Danny Elfman or, or Tim Burton. It, it's got that sort of vibe. Um, yeah. Uh, next cut, uh, She's Leaving Home, uh, pure Paul McCartney. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door Leaving the note that she hoped would say more She goes downstairs to the kitchen clutching her handkerchief Pure Paul McCartney, love that song. I love the uh, Mike Leander arrangement. Um, I love his vocal. I love John's vocal on the choruses. Um, and I think also that was sped up as well. Um, and I seem to recall reading somewhere that it was because it made Paul McCartney sound a little younger. You know, he was only 24 <laughs> when they made that album. Um, I'm just looking through my notes here. Uh, that is, he did have it. He wanted him himself to sound younger. So they, they very speeded it up. Uh, so he does sound that way. Um, and again, the great John Lennon counterpoint to the Greek chorus, as I called it, like in getting better, it was Lennon who came up with the, you know, we gave her most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. 
uh, all of that to counter with uh, McCartney's. It would, the song was inspired um, by an article in the Daily Mail on uh, February 27, 1967, the headline, uh, but a 17-year-old girl who ran away from home, leaving behind a mink coat, diamond rings, and her own car. The father was quoted as saying, I cannot imagine why she should run away. She has everything here. And the story inspired McCartney to write the song. Uh, the from sort of Beatles land, a, a famous story around it is George Martin did every single Beatles arrangement except for this one, uh, and it was classic McCartney and patience. I rang George and I said, "I need you to arrange it." And he said, "I'm sorry, Paul. I've got a silla, a silla block. I've got a silla session." And I thought, "Fucking hell! After all this time working together, he ought to put himself out." It was probably, probably unreasonable to expect him to. Anyway, I said, "Well, fine, thanks, George." But I was so hot to trot that I called Mike. Leander, Leander uh, another arranger, and I got him to come over to Cavendish Avenue, and I showed him what I wanted, strings, and he said, leave it with me. Mike Leander, uh, I mean, the guy wasn't a chump. Uh, he was an executive producer of the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice concept album, Jesus Christ Superstar in the late 60s. Uh, wrote scores for, uh, what do we have? Uh, Privilege, Run a Crooked Mile, uh, worked with Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, I mean, just a brilliant body of work. And sadly, he died of cancer at the age of 54 in 1996. Um, but it's, uh, is it a little more treacly than what George Martin would have done, do you think? Uh, who knows? I mean, it, it does sound different to me than, than something I would associate with George. I, I'm pretty sure that it was a sore spot for George Martin until, you know, until the day he died. I thought, I think it, it was, he was offended by Paul. Um, Rightfully so. Yeah, totally. Rightfully. But, yeah. you know, classic, we got to get it done, we got to get it done. What do you mean you can't do it at a moment's notice? And that was, you know, that's classic from, again, from the outside. I don't know the man, but McCartney, impatience. He wanted something done and he wanted it done right and he well, wanted it done then. Well, not just McCartney. Lennon had a similar kind of impatience, you know, with uh, Ballad of John and Yoko and... Uh, Instant karma. Instant karma, exactly, yeah. Yep. Uh, the Beatles play no instruments on the track. Uh, John and Paul double track vocals on this. Uh, four violins, three violas, two cellos, one double bass, and Sheila harp. Bromberg yeah. plays the harp. Uh, to me, it is one of the most beautiful lyrics ever written by McCartney. It is so British, it could be a Harold Pinter play. It just, it has, that you could make a movie out of it. It, it just, it has that feel to it. Your version, perhaps the closest thing to the original version on the whole record, maybe I would say, uh, like the original, driven by the violas, the violins, the cellos, were you worried that it would miss the harp? I totally trusted Kevin. Kevin Fox was the arranger. Kevin, for those of you who don't know, um, he's a really gifted um, cellist, guitarist, songwriter, um, arranger. He's been part of uh, Steve, Stephen Page's trio with Craig Northey for years. Uh, I just gave it to him and said, you know, 
again, knowing that he would treat it with the utmost respect. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door Leaving the note that she hoped would say more She goes down stairs to the kitchen Clutching her handkerchief Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside she is free Perhaps, you know, it sounds closest because, again, aside from the harp, it was written for strings and, you know, we had strings. Although, I mean, the horns uh, are a part, an important part of our arrangement. Uh, again, the difference is, the main difference is subtle, but... Um, I think our version had less kind of rhythmic grounding than the original. There are these eighth note um, stabs in the strings that run throughout the original. Ours floats more. And, and it was a challenge, actually, for the guys to feel where the beats were, the singers to feel where the beats were. Because, again, you know, the pop singers, they, they rely so much on the rhythm section for for context and you know it does it has yeah. that and that's a great word that stabby feel like eleanor rigby that's totally dun, yeah. Dun, dun. Yeah. yeah not not quite as harsh but yeah yeah a beautiful song and and stephen page just kills it with the vocal he really does you know yeah. and, and the backing vocals are all beautiful you know last track on side one of sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band being for the benefit of mr kite Yeah, I love it, you know, I love the whole circus vibe and, and, you know, all the whirling organs and, you know, there's a mellotron in there, I think, and a harmonium and some bass harmonicas. I, I, I love the soundscape. Um, and again, I'm probably going to mess up this uh, quote, but I love how what Lennon said to George Martin when they started recording what he was looking for. He said, I want to hear the sawdust in the ring. Um, they really captured that. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Qu the quote is, uh, I want to be able to smell the sawdust off the floor. There you go. Yep, you're, uh, you're bang on there. D taken almost word for word uh, off of a Victorian circus poster that John had purchased on January the 31st in Seven Oaks, Kent, uh, when they were there shooting the Strawberry Fields Forever promo film. Uh, they, I guess they took a lunch break, went for a little wander in the town. He went into an antique shop and, and purchased this poster. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, in the middle eight bars, multiple recordings of fairground organs uh, were spliced together to attempt to produce this request, this sort of I want to smell the sawdust off the floor thing that Lennon was looking for. In a 1968 interview, Martin recalls that he achieved this by playing the Hammond organ myself and speeding it up. 
And after a great deal of unsuccessful experimentation, Martin instructs Jeff Emmerich, who is the recording engineer, to chop the tape up, tape kids, physical tape, into little pieces uh, and throw them up in the air and reassemble them at random. And there were apparently 19 pieces of tape taped back together, some backwards, randomly, and that created the effect. your answer is going to be but i have to ask you again your version like that is again most people that's the quintessential thing about being for the benefit of mr kite is that middle section with the the sort of weird dreamy organ that i just told you how they created that how did you try to recreate that middle eight section it was uh shelly berger that that um arranged it um again really talented bass player arranger uh he gave that those swirly figures to the strings and i thought it worked quite well and the only direction i gave uh shelly was to give it a big finish unlike the original because we took a break the intermission was the end of side a and i asked him to write something really meaty for the band that features the band so the the singers left the stage for the last couple of minutes of the song and kind of handed it over to uh um, to the band and I don't know if you caught it um, but he quotes again that uh, orchestral climax from A Day in the Life It's interesting. I mean, they, you know, these guys, they, I delegated these songs to the various arrangers and you, they didn't know what the other arrangers were going to do with the songs, right? Like they were just focused on their own arrangement. And a lot of them uh, were motivated or, in, or inspired to quote other Beatles songs. So uh, a few of the songs on this album quote, uh, on our album, quote other Beatles songs. Well, to, just to, to keep it uh, in terms of the song we're talking about, you did a great job as the ringmaster of the circus. <laughs> All right, that is side number one. 
And like the Art of Time Ensemble, we are also going to take a break between sides one and two. So be sure to join us next time, and we're going to dig in to side two of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, as well as the interpretation of that side by the Art of Time Ensemble. That is on the next edition of The Walrus Was Paul podcast. So, Andrew, thank you very much. My pleasure. And I will talk to you then. Uh, If you have enjoyed this episode, or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation. It will be greatly appreciated. Your donation goes towards supporting the ongoing production of this little podcast, and any little amount helps. If you can afford it, please make a donation. Uh, You can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. You can also follow the podcast on the usual socials. On Twitter and Instagram, I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page, and you'll find me there. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me, old school folks, good old email. Uh, it is the.romicast at gmail.com. Positive reviews and shares on Facebook or your social channels also help out. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk. Pleasure as always. So long, and I'll talk to you later. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? 